A man with a black hood over his head drives a car into a small town. You heard me right. A man driving a car with a cloth draped over his head and covering his eyes drives into a small town. How many people got killed? Is he trying to kill himself? Should he kill himself? Above all else, why didn't he die on the way into town? What kind of crazy shit is... Then... There's a passenger train barreling out of Chicago, cutting through the night. A tired man on the train calls out a con man, cheating a few guys at the back of the dining car. The game he's running is the three-card Monty. The dealer, offended, put forth a bet to the man. Find the queen and stay on the train. Pick the wrong card, and well, maybe shit doesn't go that well. Keep listening to find out what the hell I'm talking about. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. The Book of Week, the only podcast blacklisted by illiteracy. My name is Elton, and I read a book a week. The book this time around is by Ray Bradbury, a man who once said, quote, I have learned on my journeys that if I let a day go by without writing, I grow uneasy. Two days, and I am in tremor. Three, and I suspect lunacy. Four, and I might as well be a hog suffering the flux in a wallow. An hour's writing is tonic. I'm on my feet, running in circles, and yelling for a clean pair of spats. Those are the words of a writing junkie and spat-wearer, Ray Bradbury, one of the most celebrated 20th century American writers. The book this time around is one of his, titled Driving Blind. It's a lovely children's tale about a young dragon prince named Milo, trying to dethrone his murderous uncle, Zupadoop. Aided by a cantankerous wizard named Barlow, he discovers an ancient prophecy that says the only way to do that is to behead his uncle, drink his blood, then marry his own mother. Hilarious hijinks ensue when Milo discovers not only the truth about his father's identity, but also a little something about himself, too. With a mouthful of his father-slash-uncle's thigh bone and his mother's hand in marriage, Milo learns an awkward, all-too-common life lesson. The ones you love the most sometimes have the tastiest meat. What the fuck am I talking about? If you're a new listener, I'm sorry you had to hear that. If you're a regular listener, you probably knew that was coming, and I hope it made it fun for you. Hey, either way, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for choosing it to violate your brain. As of right now, you should be following it on all the social medias, and should have emailed me at least once or twice to complain. If not, then you're missing out on some pretty good complaining. Who doesn't love bitching? I know I don't. I've dedicated my personal Twitter account to it. So, get on the Elton Reads a Book a Week social media train. Why I said train, I don't know. I'm not turning back now. Chew. Fucking chew. If you would like to contribute to the podcast and help produce it, you can do so via Patreon or the podcast Anchor.fm page. You can also rate and review it and tell a friend or two. That is very very, very helpful. Thank you in advance for all you do. You're great. Now to the book, which is Driving Blind by Ray Bradbury. It is not 
a bizarre children's tale about an incestuous father-slash-uncle murdering cannibal dragon. But it is instead a collection of short stories by the one and only Ray Bradbury. Though I wouldn't put it past Ray Bradbury to write a story about an incestuous cannibal drag. No? No. Driving Blind is a collection of 21 short stories by Ray Bradbury, four of which were previously published, which were then slapped together and published by Avon Books in 1997. A publisher that's done some pretty interesting things, by the way. Join me on a little side excursion for a second. Founded in 1941, Avon was bought up by the publisher HarperCollins and now publishes award-winning romance and other paperbacks. Recognized for having pioneered the historical romance category and continued publishing in a wide variety of other genres, including paranormal, urban fantasy, contemporary, and regency. What the fuck is regency? I imagine you might have just thought, don't feel bad. I didn't know uh, what the hell it was until I did this research either, but they're romance books of a subgenre of romance novels set during the period of the British Regency, 1811 to 1820, or, you know, early 19th century, if you're going really vague, rather than simply being versions of contemporary romance stories transported, you know, to a historical setting. Regency romances are a distinct genre with their own plot and stylistic conventions. The book Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen is a Regency romance book. Another example um, that can be found in the entertainment wilderness of today is the television show, Netflix show, Bridgerton. It's on, it's on Netflix. That's a Regency romance show. This allows me to smoothly segue to this episode's sponsor, Netflix. Netflix is the only streaming service producing today's finest, highest quality programming. <laughs> yeah, right. Me sponsored by Netflix, I'd be doing this fucking thing every week on the dot and not at the few and far between pace my crappy 40 plus hour job and abbreviated sleeping schedule would allow me to do right now. Fuck, I'd be sleeping even less, cracking out two hours of sleep a day, cranking out episodes, sucking on that sweet Netflix money teat. Give me the titty dollars, Netflix. I'll do whatever you want. You want the nipples rub tweaked? Do you do, you do the nipple rubbing tweaking? Just give me a chance, Netflix, baby. You got me. You can do it. I can do what you need. No, I'm not sponsored by Netflix, though if you're listening, Netflix, I'm more than happy to be sponsored by you, and I promise I'll leave out all the weird nipple stuff, you know, if you want. I digress. Among the great works published by Avon is, and here's where it gets interesting, one of the great works is the very non-Regency romance book, The Satanic Bible, in paperback. Now... How's that for a swing in the other direction? No, I'm not joking about that, by the way. In 1968, an Avon editor named Peter Mayer approached Anton LeBay, the founder of the Church of Satan and the religion of Satanism, with the idea of publishing, you know, a satanic Bible. And he asked Anton to author it. Anton, of course, obliged, and in December of 1969, Avon published to the thunderous applause and consumption of the entire world, because, you know... Readers and Satan, birds of a fucking feather. And that is why, today, all books have been burned by the firemen. And even the mention of the devil's printing press demons warrants a visit from the re-education police. Oh, 
oh, hey, there's a knock on my door. See you in 10 to 20 years or after the lobotomy, whichever comes first. See you, folks. Into the unmarked van I go. Uh, no. As fun as that might sound, no. But it it did sell very well. and still does. Who knew? Satanic Bible. The Satanic Bible, by the way, is a collection of essays, observations, and rituals published by Anton LaVey. It is the central religious text of LaVeyan Satanism and is considered the foundation of its philosophy and dogma. LaVeyan Satanism is way different than regular Satanism in one very crucial respect. Ready for this? Baking! That's right. In the late 1950s, Anton LaVey, in addition to his practice of Satanism and all things Satan, ran a pretty successful bakery in Southern California. Among his many signature offerings was a particular kind of cake that you may recognize. Devil's food cake! Yeah! According to the unauthorized history of Satane Sapodum Pistoria, Anton LaVey first made the now-famous chocolate delight as an experimental alternative to angel food cake. He wanted to make a chocolate cake, but felt the flavor wasn't quite rich enough or Satan enough. After communing with the Dark Lord, sacrificing three black mice and a chicken named Randy, the devil appeared in a dramatic show of black smoke and horns and covered in chocolate, basically told Anton to add a, a little bit of coffee mixture to it. So, he baked it, sold it, and later due to its immense popularity, licensed the recipe to several large food distributors, i.e. Hershey, Pillsbury, Duncan Hines, etc. To this day, any purchase of any of his trademarked Devil's Food Cake chocolate cake names and recipes uh, pays a licensing fee and royalty to the Church of Satan for the usage of Anton LaVey's intellectual property. So, remember that next time you buy a or bake a devil's food cake for some fucking fundraiser bake sale thing. You're making a small donation to the furtherment of Satanism and satanic causes and helping the devil. So yeah, how about that? Right? You know, the more you know, you know, moving on now. Okay. Uh, Ray Bradbury. I'm fucking okay. Okay. Devil's food cake and Satanism. Really? No. Devil's Food Cake originated in the southern United States. The first printed recipe appeared in 1902 in Sarah Tyson Rohrer's book, Mrs. Rohrer's New Cookbook, a manual of housekeeping. The original recipe used melted chocolate and baking powder, unlike the modern version, which calls for cocoa and baking soda. The full recipe is thus. Half a cup of milk. Four ounces of chocolate, half a cup of butter, three cups of pastry flour, one and a half cups of sugar, four eggs, and two teaspoons of baking powder. Here's what you do. You put four ounces of chocolate and a half pint of milk in a double boiler. Cook until smooth and thick and stand aside to cool. Beat a half cup of butter to a cream. Add gradually one and a half cups of sugar and the yolks of four eggs. Only the yolks. Beat until light and smooth. Then add the cool chocolate mixture and three cups of pastry flour, with which you have sifted two teaspoons of baking powder. Beat thoroughly like a rented mule and for at least five minutes. Then stir in the well-beaten whites of the eggs. So see, you shouldn't have thrown them away. You should just 
add them in later right here. Then stir in the well-beaten whites of the eggs. Bake in three or four layers. Put the layers together with soft icing. And, you know, to which you have uh, added a couple chopped nuts. The success of this cake depends upon the flour used. Thank you, Mrs. Rohrer, for the recipe and my malfunctioning brain for ruining my future Duncan Hines sponsorship possibilities. So to recap, the Satanic Church cake stuff was bullshit. Anton Publishing, the Satanic Bible, yeah, he really did that. That's true. In 2006, Avon started an offshoot, by the way, to print erotica. So they're still helping with the devil's business by working that sin, giving the idle hands something to look at while they're being the devil's plaything. You know, by jerking off or diddling. That's what I'm, you know, depending on what hardware you're working with. Did I, did I, was that not clear? I tried to make it, okay, anyway. Though, I think it would be neat if someone uh, was thinking the devil's food cake was satanic. They heard that and was like, what the fuck, Satanists? That's my favorite cake, goddammit. I have to tell somebody. All right, back to driving blind. Let's find out a little bit about the man who started out an author but became a legend. D dairy author. That sounded better in my head. I want to jump in here and say that Ray Bradbury was an author that changed my life. When I was a kid, I remember reading A Sound of Thunder, and it blew my fucking mind. From then on, hooked on sci-fi books, time travel stuff, and all that shit. Checking out stacks of books from the Lawton Public Library in Lawton, Oklahoma. Bradbury and... William Slater were my gateway to Arthur C. Clarke and Dean Koontz, Douglas Adams, and more. All of them helped me through my uh, my being an awkward kid and, and later provided inspiration for an endless parade of stories that I'd used to impress my friends during drug binges. Ah, memories. So I've always had a soft spot for Ray Bradbury. He seemed to be a sweetly confusing oddball science fiction genius who loved the shit out of writing dinosaurs, and also hated computers, cars, some technology, and all, all of the internet. And might have just wanted everyone around him to know death's cold, unforgiving embrace and the darkness its bittersweet caress can bring. That last part is pure speculation on my part. Ray motherfucking Bradbury, best known for his highly imaginative stories and novels that blend a poetic style, nostalgia for childhood, social criticism, and an awareness of the hazards of runaway technology. He was one of the first to combine the ideas of science fiction with a more developed writing style. In much of uh, Bradbury's fiction, everyday events are transformed into unusual and sometimes dangerous situations. By many estimations, Mr. Bradbury was the writer most responsible for bringing modern science fiction into the literary mainstream. More then 8 million copies of his books have been sold in 36 languages. They include the short story collections, the Martian Chronicles, the Illustrated Man, and the Golden Apples of the Sun, and the novels Fahrenheit 451 and uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Though he never won a Pulitzer Prize, he did receive a Pulitzer Citation in 2007 for his distinguished and prolific and deeply influential career as an unmatched author of science fiction and fantasy, which Bradbury promptly rejected, stating, if you're going to jerk me off, at least lube your fucking hand. Either give me a fucking Pulitzer or don't, you hack, no talent, wastes of fucking ink. No, of course he didn't say that, but I like to imagine he did. 
Ray Bradbury's accolades came from years of writing prolifically. The guy wrote every day from an early age. He was lucky enough to turn what he was most passionate about into his job. He did what he loved, that motherfucking God, the bastard. Author Ray Douglas Bradbury was born on August 22nd, 1920, a full month past his due date. Yeah, the guy loved building suspense so much he made his mother wait for his own birth. That's real shit. I mean, not the knowingly making his mother wait for his birth part, but, you know, he'd just be a weapons great asshole for doing that. No, uh, he was born a month late. Bradbury claimed that his extra month in the womb heightened his senses, senses, heightened his senses to such a degree that he could recall his own birth, which, if you can't guess, means Ray Bradbury exaggerated, you know, a little bit and was a kind of a strange motherfucker. If you're going to do some personal myth building, why would you say you could recall your own birth? Who would envy that? Of all the milestones a human being could possibly want to recall instantly, birth is not high on that list. Hell, I'm pretty sure it's not in, even in consideration for large swaths of humanity. Being squeezed from the insides of another human being was probably not the slip-and-slide fun-time biology class makes it out to be. Babies are crying for a reason. I'm sure it has something to do with the forceful ejection via tiny opening part of the experience. I mean, there's a good reason nature made our memories bad enough to forget our own births. Plus, there's the awkwardness of, you know, remembering your mother in that position. Who wants to remember that? It's a nightmare you'd want to forget, if anything. Ray must have had so much therapy. Ugh. Born a month late in Waukegan, Illinois, a place first visited by Pere Marquette in 1673, who, as legend has it, proclaimed aloud, This isn't Chicago, you bunch of lying assholes. As one of the oldest communities in Illinois, it's often mistaken for a place much cooler than it is, and is willing to openly apologize when it's discovered that it's not. The city started as a French trading post. And as the Potawatomi Indian settlement, known as Little Fort. Records dating back to 1829 tell of a treaty signed by the Potawatomi Indians, in which they ceded all of their land in this area to the federal government. A treaty that surely wasn't signed under duress on the threat of a, you know, a wholesale genocidal bloodbath. No, sir. All above board out there in the land of this is my land that was once your land because my arsenal of firearms says so. Little Fort became the county seat of government in 1841 by virtue of its population. Between 1844 and 1846, the town's population grew from 150 to 750 people. Wow. In 1859, when the town was incorporated, the population had risen to 2,500 people. Wowee. One of the oldest structures in Lake County, and one of the oldest in the state, is the home of John C. Haynes, a past mayor of Chicago, Illinois. The Haynes House was built about 1843, making it one of the oldest surviving buildings in Lake County. It was enlarged to its present size in the 1870s. It now houses the Waukegan Historical Society, Highlights of which include a trunk that a young Jack Benny used during his early vaudeville days. 
the bed that Abraham Lincoln slept on while visiting the city, and the mattress that Al Capone contracted syphilis on. I'm, I'm, kidding, I'm kidding about the last one. Waukegan is the ninth largest city in Illinois by population. It is the fifth largest city on the western shore of Lake Michigan, above Chicago, Milwaukee, Green Bay, and Kenosha, with a median age of 30.5 years. Total population, 89,078 people. Toward the middle of the 19th century, Waukegan became a thriving center of industry with enterprises that included ship and wagon building, flour milling, sheep raising, pork packing, dairying, and murdering for homemade liquor money. Sorry, I'm, I'm kidding about the last one again, but, you know, that will ultimately be true a short time later. The most successful of these early Waukegan industries was the brewing of malt liquors, which would eventually lead to the killing I mentioned before. Maybe, well, I mean, there was liquor involved, you know, the Depression, 30s, uh, Prohibition. Anyway, today, the murder rate in Waukegan is four points less than the national average. <laughs> Rape is roughly half. The national average, but it seems like beating, raping, and killing you is the least of Waukegan's criminal community's concerns. They just want your shit. The average U.S. robbery rate per 1,000 folks is 0.82, while Waukegan, 1.48. Holy, hide your valuables in your ass. Shit, Batman. Waukegan is the small Illinois town depicted as Greentown. In his two semi-autobiographical novels, Dandelion Wine and Something Wicked This Way Comes. Though I'm sure it was a different kind of town back then. Fewer muggings, and uh, I imagine. Anyway, if you ever want a nostalgic trip back to a place you're not familiar with or ever will be, pick them up, those those two books. That's That's not total sarcasm. It's a nice mental vacation. It really is. Take a trip to a different yet vaguely familiar planet. Enough about Waukegan. Ray Bradbury's parents, Leonard Spalding Bradbury, a lineman for power and telephone utilities, and Esther Moberg Bradbury, a Swedish immigrant, gave Ray the middle name Douglas, after the actor Douglas Fairbanks, a famous actor in the early days of cinema whose name at birth was, get this, Douglas Elton Thomas Allman. That is the third Elton I've ever heard of, myself excluded, because... Who hasn't heard of themselves? The other three besides me are Sir Elton, more talent in his hair plugs than podcast Elton has in his whole existence, John. Elton, something or other, a kid I met in the first grade in Missouri. And now Douglas fucking Fairbanks. The shit you find out when you're trying to find out other shit. Thank you, Internet. The other, uh, sorry, the other... The other Elton I met in school, I tried to remember your name, you know, your full name. But honestly, I, I didn't really try, brutally honest. Bradbury was related to the U.S. Shakespeare scholar Douglas Spaulding and descended from Mary Bradbury, who was tried at one of the Salem witch trials in 1692. The mother of 11 children, wife of an influential judge, and much beloved by the community, she was indicted for certaine, this is a quote, this certaine, detestable arts called witchcraft and sorceries wickedly maliciously and feloniously hath used practiced and exercised at and in the township of Andivor, in the county of essex aforesaid in a 
upon and great, my God, in upon and against one Timothy Swan of Andavor, and the county aforesaid husbandmen, of which said wicked acts, the said Timothy Swan upon 26th day of July, aforesaid, and divers, other days and times both before and after was, and his tortured, afflicted, consumed, pined, wasted, and tormented. Uh, I guess that means uh, witnesses testified that she assumed animal forms. Um, her most unusual metamorphosis was said to have been that of a blue boar, because, you know, when when you metamorphosize into shit, a regular boar, that's amateur hour. And Satan doesn't roll with amateur hour or shit. Another a allegation was that she cast spells upon ships, causing a spate of illness on a on board a ship sailing uh, to Barbados. A man claimed to have witnessed her apparition one night while at sea, standing on a capstan. Capstan? Capstan. Capstan. While standing on a capstan, because back then, you know, you didn't have to be dead to be a ghost. How convenient would that be? Oh, hey, man. Hey, how, how did you get here so fast? What are you talking about? I I just saw you a few blocks uptown like five minutes ago. Huh. That's weird. I've, uh, I, I've been here all day. Really? I swear it was you, man. You were on the corner staring at mannequins in the store window and jerking off. Oh, <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, it's, that's, uh, no, no, no that, that was, uh, you know, you, you know what that was? Uh. That was my that was my goddamn apparition again. Fucking goddamn apparitions. You know, damn apparitions, you know? Anyway, even though a petition was signed by 118 people endorsing her innocence, Mary was found guilty of witchcraft and sentenced to hang. Through the ongoing efforts of her friends, her execution was delayed. After the witch debacle had passed, she was released. By some accounts, she was actually allowed to escape. Others claim she bribed her jailer. Another account claims that her husband bribed the jailer and took her away to Maine in a horse and cart. They returned to Massachusetts after the witch hysteria had died down. And Mary Bradbury died of natural causes in her own bed, 1700, age 85, with the world never, never knowing she really did turn into a blue boar and kill people on ships to Barbados. Her last words were reportedly, Fuck you, you witch-accusing motherfuckers. I so consorted with the devil and such and so forth. You thought you had me? But my evil witching skills won out. Merry satanic panic, Bradbury. Out. Okay, back to Rick. Mr. Bradbury was nine years old when the Great Depression ravaged the nation's economy. Despite that, he enjoyed a relatively idyllic childhood in Waukegan which he later incorporated into several semi-autobiographical novels and short stories, as I mentioned before. As a child, he was a huge fan of magicians, especially one named Blackstone, and he was a voracious reader of adventure and fantasy fiction, especially L. Frank Baum, Jules Verne, and uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. When he was eight, some guests at his parents' boarding home left behind a few science fiction magazines, and Ray latched onto them like a crackhead on a glass pipe. <laughs> Sorry, that's a that's a little insensitive. Like a racist on a mixed race couple. Shit, shit. No, like Sylvia Plath to an oven. Oh, that that was a. Uh, you know what I mean. Ray Bradbury was born into a family of men interested in the written word. Both his paternal grandfather and great grandfather were newspaper publishers. 
Ray Bradbury's childhood, uh, included two moves to Tucson, Arizona in 1926-1927 and 1932-1933, as this was because his father was looking for work. But both times the family returned to Waukegan because, you know, just when you think you're out of Waukegan, it pulls you back in. It was the influence of this small town and Bradbury's extended family that gave Bradbury many stories for his future novels. It was the influence of this small town and Bradbury's extended family that gave Bradbury many of the stories for his future novels. Their favorite time of the year was Halloween, which they celebrated with even more enthusiasm than they, than they celebrated Christmas. When Bradbury was eight, his Aunt Neva helped him devise the grandest Halloween party imaginable. The Bradbury home was transferred into a haunted house with grinning pumpkins, ghost-like sheets hanging in the cellar, raw chicken meat representing parts of a dead witch, a brewing cauldron, a ritual blood sacrifice turning into blue boars, sinking Barbados-bound ships, then merry satanic panic Bradbury would drag a party-goer's soul to hell, and cupcakes. In years to come, these details furnish material for Bradbury's stories. Not everything, you know, the from the sacrifice bit on. But anyway, as the as a young boy, Bradbury's life revolved around magic, magicians, circuses, dinosaurs, and other fantasies. Whenever traveling circuses pitched their tents, ah, a child. Whenever they pitched their tents in Waukegan, Bradbury and his brother were always on hand. Blackstone the magician came to town when Bradbury was 11, and he attended every performance. He attributed his lifelong daily writing habit to a visit to a carnival-slash-festival in Waukegan on Labor Day weekend in 1932, when a carnival entertainer, Mr. Electro, a defrocked minister and World War I veteran from Cairo, that's Cairo, Illinois, when he touched him with an electrified sword, made his hair stand on end and shouted, Live forever! He said, I decided that that was the greatest idea I had ever heard. I started writing every day, and I never stopped. Because nothing defines a life's purpose like getting electrocuted by a sword as a child. The next day, Bradbury returned, determined to live forever, to ask Mr. Electro Shocky McSword Stabber for some advice on a magic trick. Clean up your language, Mr. Electro told the carnies. The magician vanished back behind the curtains and invited the boy back into the tent. Mr. Electro introduced him to the other performers in the carnival, who showed him different methods of killing. Electro, his electrified sword slashing, obviously. Mr. Bigley, his sitting on people until they just fucking broke. And Wanda, the Venus flytrap, who would literally rip a man's dick off with her vagina. No word on how she murdered women, but, but just the dick ripping seems nightmarish enough. Kidding, of course! Mr. Electro showed him around and helped him with tricks. Bradbury, at 11, began writing stories on spare pieces of butcher paper that he had to unroll as the story progressed. By 12, he knew he wanted to be a writer. Bradbury never deterred from this dream, and when asked what kept him so young and alert, he answered that he owed it all to doing something he loves every single day. It became a life-altering exercise that would change his life. He said, the best hygiene for beginning writers or intermediate writers is to write the hell out of a lot of short stories. If you can write one short story a week, it doesn't matter what the quality is to start. 
but at least you're practicing. And at the end of the year, you have 52 short stories, and I defy you to write 52 bad ones. Can't be done. At the end of 30 weeks or 40 weeks or at the end of the year, all of a sudden, a story will come that's just wonderful. This idea is great, but I think it wasn't all great all the time, which I'll get to later. That's that's foreshadowing. It was at the age of 12 that Bradbury developed a lifelong fear of driving, too. He said, I'm scared of myself. I think I'd be a bad driver. I'm scared of cars, period. I've had too many friends killed now, and I've seen too many killed in my life. When I drove across the country when I was 12, I'm sure that has a lot to do with it. If you see a few real dead bodies with brains on the pavement, it does a lot to change your attitude. It means you can get it, too. I've had a lot of relatives killed. I've had a lot of dear friends killed. It's stupid. The whole activity is stupid. With brains on the pavement, folks. Sorry about not warning you about the gory details, but Mr. Bradbury was a good storyteller, and a good story is about the details. Feel free to throw up if the mood hits you. He would never drive a car in his entire life. He was. He also had a fear of heights. When asked about it, he said, I don't like being up high. It took me three days to get to the top of the Eiffel Tower. I can only imagine the guys working the Eiffel Tower in those days. You know, they're all, Regardez ce buffoon, je parie qu'il est américain. American asshole. It's just an antenna with metal stairs that's been standing for 134 years. Walk up and look at him shaking. Pretend there's an American McDonald's hamburger at the top with a milkshake between some fake American titties, huh? Hey, good one, Jean-Paul. Yeah, so I've been thinking about um, giving up smoking. What kind of insanity is this? No smoking. How will anyone know you're French? What next? Giving up being rude to foreign people without a tone of pretentious superiority? It is our national pastime. What did our forefathers die for, Jean-Paul? They roll over in their graves. Their graves! Ah, I know, but I am tired of being stereotyped by people who do terrible French accents. Oh, like podcasters. Yes, Charles. Exactement. They make my skin crawl. Me too. Pourquoi parler to anglais? Finally, Ray and the fam settled in Los Angeles, California in April of 1934. Ray became a movie buff, sneaking into theaters as often as nine times a week by his count. Bradbury immediately began frequenting the old film studios Paramount, you know, RKO, Columbia, and MGM. Young Bradbury often roller skated through Hollywood, trying to spot celebrities. On his very first sojourn, riding atop steel-wheeled roller skates, he encountered the peerless W.C. Fields, who begrudgingly signed an autograph for the star-crazed Bradbury, and upon handing back the signature said, There you are, you little son of a bitch! W.C. Fields was a brilliant and highly influential comedian slash writer slash actor slash juggler who uh, was active at the turn of the 20th century. He's famous for playing a snarky, seemingly perpetually drunk character who was famous for lines like, I like children if they're properly cooked. I don't drink water. Fish fuck in it. Never work with animals or children. 
the sex ain't worth it. Uh, um, wait, that's that's not the right that's not the right quote. Um, I'll move on. Fourteen-year-old Bradbury <clears throat> spent countless sun-drenched afternoons outside the gates of the studios during the heyday of Hollywood, taking pictures, filling his autograph books, and sometimes. On separate occasions, gathering two or three or even four signatures from the same star. He did this for three years. Till the end of his days, Ray Bradbury kept a stack of weathered autograph books, each roughly the size of a standard-issued banking checkbook. I have a big box of autographs. I took photographs of me and uh, Marlene Dietrich, me and Ida Lupino. I took pictures of Myra Loy and Joel McRae in front of the studios. I loved Hollywood. He would also write scripts for the Burns and Allen comedy show, though though they were never used. For our listeners who don't know who George Burns and Gracie Allen were, you're stupid. And I'm sorry you're stupid. There's no helping you. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, of course. You're fantastic. I'm just messing with you. I'm sure lots of people don't know who Burns and Allen are. They're old as fuck and dead as fuck. And a little outside of the pop culture reference window. So, a brief bit about them. They were an American comedy duo consisting of George Burns and his wife, Gracie Allen, and they were fucking funny. The famous line, say goodnight, Gracie, came from them. Um, if you've never heard of that line, it's, it's been dropped in movies every now and then. You know. Anyway, they worked. <clears throat> the comedy duo worked together as a successful comedy team that entertained vaudeville, film, radio, and television audiences for over 40 years George, with his legendary cigar, was the straight man, and Gracie was the silly, goofy one. Their radio show was inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame in 1994. Their TV series produced a total of 11 Primetime Emmy Award nominations. They were inducted into the Television Hall of Fame in 1988. George Burns was one of my heroes when I was growing up, for real. I was a really weird kid. I liked Charlie Chaplin, George Burns, Danny Thomas, Lauren Hardy, and such. How I managed to uh, get a girl to touch my pee-pee is a miracle. I'll never question to this day. As for Ray, selling scripts to George Burns, he said, He didn't pay for them. I gave them to him. I got to know him, and he became a friend. I wrote scripts for the Burns and Allen show every Wednesday and gave them to George. He would read them and pretend to like them. They were terrible. But he encouraged me. He was a very sweet man. A lifelong fan of movies, Bradbury later wrote the screenplays for John Huston's adaptation of Moby Dick, as well as It Came From Outer Space and The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. What I've always been is a hybrid author, Bradbury explained in 2009. I am completely in love with movies, and I am completely in love with theater, and I'm completely in love with libraries. At the age of 15, Bradbury read Jack Woodford's book on writing, Trial and Error, and it had a major impact on him. Trial and error, by the way, caused something of a scandal at the time of publication because of its no-hold-barred insights into the publishing industry. While Jack Woodford, that's a thats a pen name, by the way. His real name was uh, Josiah Pitts Wolfolk. Wolfolk? Wolfolk. The book discussed the processes of writing and editing. He also described the behind-the-scenes machinations that resulted in the final publication of writing. The book was instrumental in the writing careers of Ray Bradbury, Robert A. Heinlein, Jerry Purnell, Piers Anthony, and Richard A. Lupoff. 
Ray Bradbury talked about this book, saying, Jack Woodford's Trial and Error was the first book on writing I ever read at the age of 15. He said all the right things and said them clearly. I stayed afloat and got my work done because of him. Bradbury attended Los Angeles High School, where he was involved in the drama club and planned to become an actor. Speaking of which, a few famous alumni of Los Angeles High School, besides Ray Bradbury, Mr. Sulu George Takai, Dustin Rainman Hoffman, and the greatest composer in history, and on Earth, and quite possibly the universe, the one and only John Silence's Golden Cage. For those who don't know, here's a clip of some of his work, which happens to be the greatest piece of music the world and universe will ever know. John Cage dropping those silent but deadly beats on you. That was the universally acclaimed greatest performance of John Cage's piece, 4 minutes 33 seconds ever, performed by the EBU, of course, which is the European Broadcasting Union. Euro Radio Orchestra. On the 100th anniversary of the piece, I'll give you a moment to pick your jaw up off the floor and dry your combination tears of both joy and and sadness. Oh, and by the way, you're welcome. In 1937, Bradbury joined the Los Angeles Science Fiction League, where he received encouragement from young writers such as such as Henry Cutner, Edmund Hamilton, Robert Heinlein, and Lee Brackett, who met with him weekly. While still in high school, in 1936, his poem, In Memory of Will Rogers, marked his first appearance in print when it appeared in the Waukegan News Sun. His first story to be published was Hollerbachen's Dilemma in 1938, which is the year Bradbury graduated from high school, and that was the end of his formal education. He did not see the need for college when he uh, you know, already knew what he wanted to do with his life. Instead, he began writing every day and haunting the local library to read every evening. He would later say, well, that's my complete education. I didn't go to college, but when I graduated from high school, I went down to the local library and I spent 10 years there, two or three days a week, and got a better education than most people get from universities. So I graduated from the library when I was 28 years old. Later, he would lecture at various libraries to raise funds for them. They're the center of our lives, he said. There's no use going to a university if you don't live at the library. I took a lot of inspiration from that too when I was growing up which is why I dropped out of school and currently sleep on a bench outside the library. I'm kidding. No, I took what Ray said to mean that reading is a fundamental way to continue developing yourself. At a library, you pick up information you consume and, and allow it to change you. Learning about the importance of libraries from reading about Ray Bradbury was actually inspiring. I used to go all the time, usually checking out the maximum amount, which was five, I think. I still read a lot today, and he was definitely an inspiration for it. He might also be why I didn't give a shit about school as much as I should have. So, I mean, not entirely great, right? Some of my fondest memories of school involved libraries, too, and smoking behind them. 
damn it if I don't miss it sometimes. Smoking was great. No. Wait, no. No, I mean, it, it left me smelling like shit and stupid cancer. Who wants that? Not me. I'll tell you that right now. Don't smoke, kids. If there's any kids listening, it was different times. Don't follow in my... Never mind. No one's following in my footsteps. Do better than Elton, kids. Read books. Smoking is for suckers. Around the time Ray Ray skipped out on college, he tried his damnedest to make writing his livelihood. He published his own magazine called Futura Fantasia, for which he wrote most of the content. But that only lasted for four issues, because he just couldn't convince enough women to let him take a picture of their titties for his made-up magazine. Come on, ladies, flash old Ray Ray those chesticles, and let's help him get some of that sci-fi skin rag money. Don't you want to help fantasy fiction Ray get some of that fantasy fiction nudie booty? Booty meaning, you know, like pirate booty. You know, money. Okay, I went too far. He did actually publish his own magazine, and it, he did only make four issues. <clears throat> I just thought it was it was funny to imagine Ray trying to pump up sales by throwing pictures of topless women in it. <sighs> he didn't do that. His first professional sale was for a short story called Pendulum, co-authored with Henry Hayes. It appeared in Super Science Stories, August 1941, on Bradbury's 21st birthday in 1942, Bradbury wrote The Lake, the story in which he discovered his distinctive writing style. He also took on copywriting work for a small advertising firm that produced radio ads for a variety of products. An ad Bradbury, an ad Bradbury wrote did garner a modicum of national fame, though later he did try to distance himself from it. This script is available on a few dark web sites. But uh, with some digging, I did manage to find it. So <clears throat> here it goes. Say there, friend. Life got you down? Feeling dreary? Lost that pep in your step? That whiz in your bang? What you need is something to get your get up a going. Maybe it's time to try Columbia's best cure for shaking off those doldrums. Maybe it's time for some cocaine. Cocaine. Today's cocaine is just the thing you need to meet all your energy needs and kiss those blues goodbye. In fact, 9 out of 10 doctors recommend it for improving tired blood, slovenly thinking, and increasing happiness levels to 115%. Zowie! So why not give it a try today? Dash on down to your local pharmacy and tell them you need the blow that'll nip your dip and give you some go. Cocaine. <sighs> okay, you know that was a horrible lie. He never wrote ads for money, but... Damn it, I would have loved to hear his take on a cocaine ad. Don't do cocaine, by the way. Don't. <sighs> no, he took to selling newspapers on various street corners to earn some of that sweet news hustling scratch. He did this until 1942. Bradbury sold his first professional piece, the story Pendulum, like I said before, in 1941, just a month before the United States entered World War II. Wait! I hear you saying loudly in my head, why didn't that war-dodging coward go and do the warring with uh, Private Ryan and John Wayne? What makes Ray so fucking special? Um, he was blind. It wouldn't have done a lot of good for his soldier buddies uh, were, were they to be just as blurry as the enemy, would it? He was uh, ruled ineligible for military service by his local draft board because of his vision problems. So yeah, yeah, I hope you feel real good about your knee-jerk judgment, the imaginary... A uh, listener that only exists in my head uh, would say, I hope you're real happy. Just try and be thankful for all the friendly misfire mishaps Ray didn't cause. By 1943, he had given up his 
jobs selling newspapers and began writing full-time, contributing numerous short stories to periodicals. His short story, The Black and White Game, was selected for Best American Short Stories in 1945. That's a pretty big deal. I'm, I'm guessing. I'm not familiar with its importance. Unless it's a Pulitzer, it's shit. Kidding. It was around this time that he met the woman. He would spend an incredibly long portion of his uh, eccentric, dinosaur-loving writing weirdness with. In 1946, Marguerite McClure, Maggie, as friends and family called her, uh, was an employee of Fowler Brothers Bookstore in Los Angeles. The store had recently had a series of burglaries, and Maggie was on high alert. It was a hot day. And Ray entered the store wearing a deep-pocketed trench coat and carrying a briefcase. Maggie was sure that he was the culprit. She followed him around the bookstore and finally asked, rather hostily, if she could help him. Fuck you, bitch, was his extremely loud reply, which he enunciated with a full palm slap across her face. As she collapsed to the floor, Ray pointed his finger at her and shouted, This is 1946 American woman. You greet a man with a blowjob and a sandwich. Of course, that's not true. I'm just sick. No, it turned out he was just looking for a copy of an anthology that had just come out. That included one of his stories. The two struck up a conversation, and a few days later, Ray came back to the bookstore and asked Maggie out. They were married on September 27th, 1947, 18 months after they'd first met. In the same year, he gathered much of his materials and published them as Dark Carnival, his first short story collection, most of which had appeared earlier in Weird Tales magazine. There were also six previously unpublished stories. From then on, Bradbury's fantasy works were published in numerous magazines throughout the country. In the early years of their marriage, Ray and Maggie were too poor to afford a phone. Ray's writing career was beginning to take off, and he needed a way for publishers and editors to be able to reach him. So he gave out the phone number of the payphone at the gas station across the street from his apartment. He worked with his window open so he could hear the phone ring, and when it rang, he would jump up and run across the street to answer it. What a crazy situation to be in, especially if you ever heard it ringing and somebody else picked it up before he got there. Hello? Huh? What the fuck are you talking about? Ray, who? Nobody lives here. It's a fucking phone booth. A, a fucking... What? No. No, listen No, listen to what I'm saying. A phone booth. Look. Look, I'm hanging up now. I need to take a shit in this phone booth. Because it's the place to do it. Bye-bye now. When Maggie died of advanced lung cancer on November 24th, 2003, the couple had been married for 57 years. It's really beautiful. Uh, 57 years. That's great. Ray writes The Martian Chronicles in 1950, which is a piece of fiction about how people from the Earth make an attempt to conquer Mars and face unplanned consequences. This was the book that would get him noticed. With the publication of The Martian Chronicles, Ray Bradbury became popular with the mainstream American reading public. Previously, he had a strong following amongst devout science fiction fans, meaning sci-fi nerds. But after... The respected novelist, playwright, screenwriter, autobiographer, and diarist Christopher Isherwood, uh, best known for his book, Berlin Stories, which were the basis for the musical Cabaret, A Single Man, in 1964, which was Freddie Mercury's favorite musical. Um, anyway, um, he got acclaimed because it was a portrayal of an openly gay professor. Uh, and also for his memoir, Christopher and His Kind, 1976, uh, which is a testimony of the gay liberation movement. 
Yeah. That anyway, Christopher Isherwood wrote a rave review of uh, Bradbury's novel, and he became the first science fiction author to be accepted by the literary establishment. While taken by many to be a work of science fiction, Bradbury himself considered it to be fantasy. I don't write science fiction, he said. Science fiction is a depiction of the real. Fantasy is a depiction of the unreal. So Martian Chronicles is not science fiction, it's fantasy. It couldn't happen, you see. He also referred to himself as an idea writer, by which he meant something quite different from the uh, erudite or scholarly. I have fun with ideas. I play with them, he said. I'm not a serious person. I don't like serious people. I don't see myself as a philosopher. That's awfully boring, he added. My goal is to entertain myself and others. He described his method of composition as word association, often triggered by a favorite line of poetry. Television and comic book adaptations of Bradbury's short stories began to appear in 1951, introducing him to an even wider audience. The Martian Chronicles was followed by The Illustrated Man and Fahrenheit 451 in 1953. Bradbury's first four books were collections of short stories. Ray famously wrote Fahrenheit 451 on a rental typewriter typewriter in the basement of UCLA's Powell Library. His daughters kept interrupting him at home, and he couldn't afford an office, so he just used rental typewriters available in the university library. The time to machine cost him 10 cents for every 30 minutes he typed, leading to a total cost of $9.80. Fahrenheit 451 was his first actual novel, though it didn't start out that way. It began its life as a novella called The Fireman in 1951, published in the science fiction magazine called Galaxy. Uh, later, when Fahrenheit 451 was published as a book, oddly enough, it was it was uh, published in both hardcover and paperback at the same time as a collection of stories. This was because it, it really is just, just, just barely a novel. The other stories were included to, you know, bring the page count up. Fahrenheit 451 was the first full-length novel I ever read from Ray Bradbury, and it blew my young, stupid mind, regarded as his masterpiece. The novel presents a future American society where books are outlawed and firemen burn any books that are found. This book hooked me on dystopian society stories and apocalypse books. I love stories about the end of civilization, too. I can't get enough of the end times. All those people running around, shit burning in the streets... Cities in shambles, warlords, wild animals, and all the free food you can wrestle from your dead neighbor's hands. As I said in the uh, Mr. Touch episode, despite my probably being one of the first to die, a good apocalypse is very entertaining. Fahrenheit 451 will be a game changer for Bradbury and made him world famous while also embroiling him in many a controversy. Over the years... People have tried to ban the book on multiple occasions for concerns about Bradbury including sex, drugs, suicide, murder, and abortion in the book. Ray himself even brought on the controversy by apparently flip-flopping as to what the book was actually really about uh, when he said the book wasn't about censorship, despite it being long hailed as one of the great works of anti-censorship interpreted over the decades as an indictment of the communist witch-hunt-era America with Senator Joseph uh, McCarthy's Red Scare investigations and, uh, and it reaches apex at the, at the very time that Bradbury was writing his book. <clears throat> was writing his book. 
In 2007, he said it was intended as a searing indictment of the looming cultural distraction of technology, most notably television. He pointed to the descriptions of huge televisions supplanting the reading of books for entertainment and information. I get it. I can see it from both angles. I do think that should one travel back in time to speak with a younger Ray Bradbury, he would say the former was his intent. But who's to argue with the guy who wrote it during any time? I mean, he wrote it. He's welcome to change his mind about his own shit as much as anyone else. Ray Bradbury had an uneasy relationship with technology. He feared it would sap the world of its creativity, mollify the masses into becoming unquestioning drones, ready for the whip. It'd strip humanity of its zeal, turning everyone into gray slabs of brain-dead tools for labor, devoid of souls, or, or something like that. In the mid-1980s, he was the on-camera host of Ray Bradbury Theater, a cable series that featured dramatizations of his short stories. Mixed messages, Ray! This even extended into the publishing of his own work, often voicing his dislike for ebooks and the internet calling it a big distraction. This led to Fahrenheit 451 not being available in ebook form until 2011. Though, spoiler alert, since his death in 2012 of a long-term illness at 91 years of age, that's right, apparently getting jabbed, uh, getting jabbed out with electrified swords does not in fact make you immortal. Joke's on you, Bradbury. Joke's on you. No. It looks uh, like more... If not all of his books have been converted to ebook form, at least according to ebooks.com. I'm not certain if they all made it or not. The, the guy was famously prolific. Bradbury wrote for several hours every day throughout his entire life, allowing him to publish more than 30 books, close to 600 short stories, and numerous poems, essays, screenplays, plays. So maybe they're all digital? I don't know. I, the copy of Driving Blind that I have is in paperback, published in 1997, uh, written by Ray Bradbury. Of course, all um, but four of the stories included in the collection are original to this collection. Is it, at a, uh, is it at a Golden Apples of the Sun or Martian Chronicles level of Bradbury goodness? Um, you know, those works being quintessential examples of Bradbury's skill and imagination in written form? Uh, fuck no. Uh, no, I don't think it is. No. Uh, it's, it's um, let's, okay. Let's talk about a few of the stories, and then maybe we'll, maybe you'll understand what it is, or what I think it is. From the collection of stories compiled to make the book Driving Blind, the actual story Driving Blind, from which the book gets the title, is the story of a stranger driving into a small, quaint 30s or 40s American town to drum up business for his Studebaker car dealership in a nearby town. How is this accomplished? By endangering the fuck out of some lives, of course. What does that mean, Elton? I mean, he speeds into the town driving a car, uh, uh, fucking blind, as one does. As mentioned in the opening, uh, this, this isn't a medical condition. He has a cloth draped over his head on purpose. Yeah. He's got a can't-see-through-the-shit cloth draped over his head uh, that he can't, again, see through. And he just fucking drives around town like that fast. Like, what the fuck is happening? There should be corpses piling up on his hood, sliding off, because I think I mentioned he's driving fast, right? But no. No, instead, he expertly navigates the streets of the town while also, oddly, not scaring the living shit out of everyone seeing him do this. The people going around town 
Are they shitting their pants and screaming? What the fuck is that guy doing? He's going to kill someone. No. No, they don't. Instead, it's more like, huh, that's weird. Fucking guy is driving with a bag on his head. That's just plain curious is what that is. Just, just odd, if anything. Jesus Christ. What kind of world was the early to mid-1900s? Pre-television was was just like, oh, look at that guy fly fishing in the middle of the street, hooking school kids. <laughs> now that's just peculiar. Oh, boy. Boy, oh, boy. Have you ever seen kids scream like that? So, with the town folk calmly underreacting, this psycho talks a boy into helping him find a place to stay for the night. A kid that then gets into the car with him. So not only is he flirting with potential vehicular manslaughter outside the car, but he's going for first-degree child murder inside the car. What's with the kid getting into the most stranger of strangers' cars? Did, did perverts and murderers not scratch the news cycle of uh, middle America back then? Then, when it can't get any more ridiculous, a cop stops the guy for a chat. He doesn't pull him out of the car while screaming and, and jamming a gun in his face. Get on the ground, you sick motherfucker! No. He's of the, uh, meh, well, you know, people are just goofy, I guess. Just peculiar is what this blinded uh, by the hood driver shouldn't be behind the wheel of a running automobile is. He's just a nutty character. Barney Fife of Inappropriate Responseville. After the insanity of the situation has set, been set up for the reader, the car, the, the, the cop, the cop lets him drive off blind with the fucking kid in the car. Son of a bitch. The least bizarre part of the story is that the guy never takes off the hood, never lets anyone see under the hood. And he's so committed to the bit, he mashes up his food and sucks it up through a comically large straw while still wearing the hood. Like... Like, mixes it all up together and sucks it up off the plate. While there are other people at a dinner table seeing this. And then, and then them being borderline comatose, you know, townsfolk, who apparently see this as just, you know, run-of-the-mill shit, shrug it off. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, just another weirdo in our small town in the middle of nowhere, as is the norm. Good old smashing your food to goop and sucking it up through a straw. <laughs> Who hasn't done that, am I right? <laughs> give me the give me a straw. Then, while puffing on an after-dinner cigarette, smoking through the hood, mind you, he reveals one of his two true intentions. He's there to sell him some motherfucking cars. So to drum up sales, he races through a town again with a child again, blind again. Does he succeed? Well, you'll have to pick up the book. Yes. Yes, he does succeed. In the end of the story, yes. Yes, he does. <sighs> Is it the end of the story? No. No, of course not. But to tell you the truth, the ending is just the, the kind. It's just the story kind of stopping in the land of where's the rest. It, it happens a lot in the book. Some of the stories just kind of end. Uh, they just kind of end. But, but not in a meaningful way that can be, uh, you know, satisfactory. Is that the right word? They just, they just stop. It's like an, an artsy indie movie where it's near the end, you know, and you see the, the movie is, is an hour and a half in. And, 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 you're, and you cross the hour and 20 mark. And there's a buildup, like, say, a, a bank robbery. And the two bank robbers escape from the police. They end up in a diner. They're out of breath. 
They're looking out the window in a panic. They're trying to hide. And they order food to, d- to dissuade the situation. And, uh, and they're served. And they start to eat. And one of them says, eggs, am I right? And then credits. You're like, son of a bitch. Did I miss something? What the fuck just happened? Why would you end it like that? What is happening? Why am I constantly fucked over by movies like this? There's, there's, there's so much left to be said. Yeah, like that. But in book form. Another example, the story titled Remember Me. It's about two guys who run into each other on the street while on vacation in Florence, Italy. What happens is an awkward tale of two acquaintances who meet outside of their their usual context. The context uh, being one is a butcher and the other is his customer. The two guys then proceed to set a time for and have dinner together, only to realize they have nothing in common and didn't know why they agreed to have dinner together in the first place. That's it. That's the story. A story they printed in a book. It wasn't like, oh, this is just a sample chapter. The real thing involves uh, Italy getting hit by a meteor. There, there's, a, there's a series of twists and turns, uh, and it turns out to be a good thing. The, the rest of the story is going to melt your fucking brain. Nope. A story, uh, two guys, shit gets awkward, done. God damn it. There were some interestingly weird ones, mind you. Not all of it plays out like a 90s indie film movie built out of vignettes, which, which, by the way, is exactly how I made sense of it all. If you think about it in that way, it's not so bad. Though some really wouldn't fit into that kind of thing. Like a truly special, it was a different time kind of story about a young guy. Um, now, I'm not making this up, by the way. It's a young guy. Uh, it's about a young guy getting a hand job. Wait a second. Don't wait a second. Getting a hand job from his female cousin. I'm not done. A hand job from his female cousin in a room with two other people who I believe might also be his relatives. Um, still not done, by the way. Still not done. That room that he's getting a hand job in from his cousin and the two other people, uh, that room is in a house filled with all of their respective relatives. Nope. Not done yet. Why are the relatives all in the same house? They're waiting for news of another relative who's dying at the hospital. Yep. Now I'm done. And yes, a story about a kid getting a handy from his cousin during a solemn family moment. Wow. Is it creative? Uh, It is creative. I'll give that to Bradbury. What I imagined was uh, Bradbury had a typewriter cracking his knuckles and thinking aloud. The third least bad sex ever. Hmm. The hand job, obviously. That's a start. So that's where I'm starting. Why the third, Ray? Glad you asked, Ray. Humping an armpit? That's just awkward all the way around. Plus, the damn smell. And convincing someone to do it at all and getting away with it and getting that deed done. That's just bad news. Probably not going to happen. Second, well, that's behind the kneecap. Same as the armpit. Only you have to smell feet and armpit while getting the... uh. The baloney pony tamed in in Papalita Fossa Junction. In keeping with the trend, Ray, uh, who would be the third least bad person to dole out? Ye old, uh, you know, rub and tug. Huh? Uh, oh, uh, that would be a cousin, of course, definitely. You uh, you see, you don't want your grandma involved. That's just uh, just a lot of crying and nightmares and praying for death. After that, same same with your mom. So I, I guess they're about the same. A cousin. 
that's just the kind of a disgust you can try and, and fail to scrub away with a lot of hot showers and tears. Now for the locale, Ray. What are your thoughts on the worst place to, when someone is dying? Always when someone is dying. That was my one-man play. Ray Bradbury talks to himself about incest handies at a quasi-funeral. It's currently being staged in my head where it should stay and never be publicly performed unless people need you know, help throwing up or an excuse to burn down a theater. Maybe, maybe I missed something in English Lit where it was okay to not tie up loose ends. Maybe the idea is that it lends, uh, it lends it gravitas or something. One, I thought I understood at the end, but now I'm not, I'm not so sure. As the one, it's the other one I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, a man is riding on a train. He can't sleep and hears a commotion at the back of the car. It sounds familiar to him. It, it's a con man bilking a few guys out of uh, money by running a game of three-card money. The tired guy knows the scam and tries to let the other guys know that they're being swindled. The dealer fires back that since he knows the scam so well, maybe he'd like to come and show everyone how it's done. I'm playing an honest game, he says. Uh, he says in a way I'm paraphrasing. The guy says he doesn't know how to perform the con, just that he knows that it is a con. Then, a wager is made that if he can find a certain card, the dealer will shut down the game. If he loses, well, something else will happen. The thing is, the ending is pretty telegraphed. But how it got there is what I don't understand. You, you want to know what happens? <laughs> Get the book! I don't give it away for free. Maybe I'm just getting old, or maybe Ray Bradbury was too famous, uh, and he had too many stories. Now, Okay, now hear me out. I really like Bradbury. I always have. There's a certain flow to his writing that is timeless. I wish I could write some something, anything, as good as him. But what if, because he was so good, that we dutifully accepted everything he did as good? I... I say did because Ray, again, died in 2012, unless he did figure out how to actually live forever. I think it's safe to say uh, no more plot lines are flowing out of his typewriter anymore. Regardless, it seems to me that this collection of stories seems more filler than killer. It's not, it's not badly written filler, though. Far from it. But it lacks a certain, you know, magnetism. It doesn't pull, pull you in the way a lot of his other writing does. I attribute this to a core belief in Ray's work regimen. He said, I believe that eventually quantity will make for quality. Quantity gives experience. From experience alone can quality come. I believe that too. But when it comes to publishing your work for mass consumption, gatekeepers can be a good thing. Did Ray have one? Absolutely. All published writers have to submit their work for a review of some sort. My belief is that as your notoriety rises, the more the more passes you get. Which, hey, I I get it. If a great writer were to send me their work, yeah, I definitely think it was all amazing. And eventually, I probably wouldn't feel the need to scrutinize it so hard. As a brief aside, here are some more writing tips and inspirational advice to jumpstart your daily writing practice from Ray Bradbury, as interpreted by Colin Marshall on OpenCulture.com. Start short. Don't start out writing novels. They take too long. Write a hell of a lot of short stories, he said. Give yourself time to improve. With each week and month, you'll see your stories improve. 
Uh, he claims that it simply is impossible to write 52 bad short stories in a row. Just type any old thing that comes in your head, he recommended. Word association to break down any creative blocks, since you don't know what's in until you test it. List 10 things you love and 10 things you hate, then write about the former and kill the latter, also by writing about them. Do the same with your fears. Live in the library. Step away from your computer and expose yourself to new books. Often, there are numerous worlds to discover beyond your screen. Writing is not a serious business. Write with joy. If a story starts to feel like work, scrap it and start one that doesn't. Examine quality short stories. He suggested reading works by Raul Dahl. I can never say that guy's name right. Raul Dahl. Guy de Maupassant, Nigel Neal, and John Collier. Turn to stories with metaphors. Surprisingly, he considered New Yorker stories of late lacking in this department. Read a lot, but select wisely. Bradbury's recommended well-rounded bedtime reading. One short story, one poem, especially Pope, Shakespeare, and Frost. And one essay. See, while all that is sound advice, I think driving blind might be the victim of a combination of the quantity over quality idea and the 52 short stories advice. The impetus of this book and how it came to be, I like to imagine went down a little something like this. Ray, it's your agent Marvin. Y you got a minute? Sure, Marvin. Uh, what can I do for you? Listen, Ray, I'm getting word that your uh, your catalog uh, your catalog needs a little goosing. All right, maybe you need a reason to get your name on uh, daytime shows and papers. You you want another book? Ray, baby, that's the game we chose to play, right? You're a writer, a storyteller, a literary giant. But every year, another slew of new books that push your uh, that push your name down the list. You know, now me. I think no. No, I know you're a genius, but uh, but my megaphone is only so big, you know? <sighs> when do you need to buy? If we're being honest here, Ray, the, the sooner the better. I mean, uh, we've we've got that, uh, you know, that freaking Stephen King bastard breathing down our necks. That kid is shitting out a book every week, it seems, you know? You know, uh, I think I got some, uh, something around here. Matt, we need something, baby. You know, something to get that Bradbury name in lights again. Right. Uh, let's, uh, you know, he rifles through some filing cabinets and grabs a fistful of stories. Yeah, yeah, I, I have a pile right here. I'll, I'll send them over. Great, great. I'll, uh, I'll call you when I get them and, uh, and smack them into a dust jacket, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's what I think Driving Blind might have been. It's a, it's a good read. If you, if like I said, you, you read it like a disjointed vignette kind of thing, like the movie Four Rooms, but without the bellboy to tie it together. Still, you shouldn't expect the Martian Chronicles or Golden Apples of the Sun. Just solid craft from a famous writer who seemed a little cavalier with putting endings on shit. I mean, if you're going to shock the reader and with an ending that just stops short, really go for the gusto. You know what I mean? The dealer looks the man up and down and says... I'll make you a deal. If you can guess where the Queen of Hearts is in the next shuffle, I'll give everyone their money back. Pack up my game and that'll be that. No harm, no foul. However, you guess wrong. And the game continues only. Only what? The man answers. 
Only I. I turn into a blue boar and hump you until my blue boar dick falls off and you die. Yeah, how about that, motherfucker? How about you get some blue boar dick? Wait, wait, what, what, what are you guys looking at? Where are you going? Hey, hey, I dealt the cards. You can't leave. Don't you want to win? Wait, don't you want to win your money back? Wait. Thank you for listening to Out and Reads a Book a Week. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to tell a friend by sharing it with them. And, you know, leave a rating and review. That that really helps, too, you know, on your podcast provider thing of choice. I might end up, you know, uh, as a recommended thing for other people. And that's good because it just, it just makes this grow. And if you'd like to contribute to the show's production, um, feel free to contribute on the Patreon and Anchor.fm pages that I will link to in the description. And you know what? And thank you so very much for listening. And please... Please start reading a book this week. Don't let them die. Duh. Don't let them die. Yet. Thank you.